to the seminary or? Uh, just churches. Okay. Anytime uh, a church is willing to let me in the door. Awesome. Awesome. Good. Good. Is that often? No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what do you do? You got you have your own like powerpoints and slides. Yeah, yeah, I do kind of a modified uh, tactics uh, training that I've put on a number of times, and uh, we do a little atheist role play to kick things off, and then we go into tactics a little bit and uh, break that down over a couple of weeks. Oh, that's pretty cool. What are your main points that you teach on? Ah, how to have gracious conversations with people and. But you do give uh, an offensive apologetic, right? Yeah, yeah, we, we give a few, but uh, the main thing is is how to have these conversations, especially for somebody that's thrown in with no idea what to do. So we cover arguments as we kind of go through the thing. Um, so it's kind of a little combo training. Right on. Good evening, Ringo Cat. Welcome to the backstage. There you are. There you go. Yeah, you're in the backstage. So yeah, just just so you know, Ringo looks like Danny was a little scared to, to be grilled. I wouldn't say it's that. Running a little late. <laughs> I'm just joking. Come on. Yeah, right, Dale. We know you're serious. <laughs> Where did you? David Russell, where did you meet uh, Danny? Like, how did how did this show get arranged? I guess. Just um, I got a hold of him through uh, um, Twitter and Facebook. So. Oh, okay. You've never interacted with him or anything. Else. Yes, he was on Pora. Oh, was he? okay. Okay. Yeah. So you've got the prior relationship one. Awesome. Hopefully he knew uh, it was tonight. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's on. It's on the. Um, yeah, it's on the uh, thumbnail there. Yeah, no, I'm just saying. Like, ho hopefully it wasn't like maybe like he misunderstood. He thought it was for a different date or something on his end. to the vulture. How's it going? Nice to see you here. <laughs> Alright. Hey there Ray. Nice to see you. We're just wait we're just waiting for Danny to show up. So yeah sorry that's why we're kinda rambling on here with nothing to say but um Ringo Cat, he's yeah. I don't believe you don't have plenty of things to say. <laughs> I, I am desperate to, I'm, I'm just trying to keep people entertained while we're waiting. But uh, yeah, Ringo, he says there's a backstage pass. 
Yep, welcome to the backstage. Alright, cool, he's just chilling. Alright, we might just have to wing this, gentlemen. Cool. My specialty. Hamburgers for dinner. Interesting. Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of Faith Unaltered. I'm your host, David Russell, and I'm joined here with my two co-hosts, uh, Dale Glover and Caleb Johnson of Questioning Christianity, and Dale is of Real Seekers Ministry. Yes, how are you guys doing today? Good, good. Happy to be here to, to grill an atheist without the atheist. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Caleb, doing real good. Right on, right on. You see how our family's growing, guys. It's just such a beautiful thing. And we just hit the 1,000 subscriber mark. Thank you all for uh, liking, subscribing, and sharing. It's it's awesome. Um, but if you haven't, keep going. Keep going because we always love more subscribers. So, yeah, we just hit that 1,000 mark, and, yeah, it feels great. Awesome. How you got, what have you guys been up to? 
Uh, for me, on my end, uh, so I'm excited because uh, yes, last night I just had my first Bible study, teaching like a Bible study, and I'm I'm doing it on the evidence for the resurrection uh, and stuff like that. And uh, we were kind of looking specifically, what's the nature of the resurrection body? Is it a physical or is it just a spiritual resurrection, like Dale Allison believes and stuff? So, yeah, that was that went well. I think it was new for them. Uh, they're not into apologetics, but. Uh, yeah, I think they found it interesting and stuff, so that was good. Right on, Caleb. Yeah, I've, uh, I've been having uh, weekly conversations with some new LDS friends, so uh, that's been fun. We're going through Joseph Smith's history a little bit. Right on. It, well, what's what what strikes you particularly in those type of conversations? How do you go about your witness there? Yeah, the, the hardest thing having conversations with either LDS missionaries or, or Jehovah's Witness missionaries, the, the biggest challenge is often the language because we use the same words, salvation, atonement, uh, faith, and yet these things mean something completely different to them and their religion uh, versus what Orthodox Christianity would say uh, these things mean definition-wise. So you talk a lot past each other. So it's a lot of uh, going back to basics and figuring out definitions. That's wild. That's wild. I, yeah, I noticed that too uh, whenever I was talking to him as well and Jehovah's Witnesses. There's a lot of speaking past each other. Um, but yeah, guys, well, we had a, a great uh, uh, episode for you guys tonight, but it seems like our... Uh, guest hasn't showed yet, so we're just kind of waiting for him to pop on here. But before we do that, I was just going to lay out some some things for you guys as well. Um, what are some of the hardest uh, questions that you've had to answer when it comes to uh, non-belief? Dale? Uh, oh, so hardest questions for me yeah. as a Christian to have to answer? Yeah. Um, I think that I, I think uh, kind of going based on like Tyler Vela, it's, it's people, atheists who they say, well, look, I, I don't have this belief or the Holy Spirit's never spoken to me or, um, you know, like unanswered prayers for, for a lot of them. They that's a really big issue for them um, and stuff like that. So, yeah, that, I think that's one of the main objections I get. It, it's not necessarily an intellectual thing. It's this more emotional dealing with their emotions that they feel abandoned or God's not hearing or listening to them and stuff. Right on. Uh, Caleb, what do you think? Yeah. Um, my answer kind of ties in with Dale's there. Um, the problem of evil is a big one, but it's not necessarily that intellectual problem of evil. It's the emotional problem of evil. We've all had experiences with real evil, either close to us or right in our backyard. And so, uh, a lot of times when people are asking questions about why evil exists, it's a very personal thing because it's so close to home for them that you got to separate the intellectual from the emotional. And doing that in conversations with somebody is is really challenging. No, I hear you. I, I agree. I think, uh, you know, most of these deconversions and stuff c come with, you know, I wasn't treated right either a by the church or uh, some sort of emotional response to something that they've been through um, that usually triggers it. 
And I don't know why that sometimes evacuates the intellectual side of it all, but it does. And it, it's, it's crazy to me. Um, but, uh, I wanted to go and ask this question to Danny tonight, and this is what I was going to ask. Um, Danny had a, a a live where he was asking, "Does God have free will?" So I'll I'll let you guys play with that for just a second. Do you believe God has free will? How would you answer that? Me first. Me first. Um, Dale, just jump in, man. Okay, okay. No, I'm just being polite to Caleb. Um, yeah, so I I definitely believe that God is a free will agent, um, and in a libertarian sense. Um, I When I first became a Christian in 2018, I, I did get kind of tripped up by like, okay, well, if he's determined, is he maybe determined by his nature or something? So like, he, it's impossible for him, logically impossible for him to sin, for example. Um, but I, I now see that that is a mistake. I, I do think it's logically possible for God to sin. God uh, can logically tell a lie or something, but I now just say it's metaphysically impossible for God to sin. There's no, uh, you know, feasible world where God sins, even if there's a logically possible one where he has the power to lie or to beat someone up or something like that. So, yeah. So you would you would kind of stray from the nature argument then? Well, I, It's I, like I, it, the way – because the way I see it is, is like, okay, so I have a uh, – I have free will, right? But I, I don't have the free will to turn into a dog, right? So I, I really can't violate my nature, you know what I mean, uh, to that degree. And, you know, like, I mean, and what is free will at that point? What is a, a being a free moral agent, um, you know, uh, in entail? You know, is it to do anything versus everything, right? And I think God can do everything. I don't think he can just do anything. So I would kind of, like, categorize it in one of those uh, logical impossibility uh, categories, yeah, I think that's a mistake, right? Like, I think it's inherent to any free will agent that that's inherent. They can do if if us doing some kind of sin is a logically possible action for us. It, it's logically possible for God as a free will agent, but it is His nature. I do. It's because of His nature that makes it metaf infeasible for God to ever sin. So it's it's metaphysically impossible, uh, not logically impossible. So what do you what do you mean by uh, so yeah you're you're just making a distinction between the feasibility and the the logic of it at all yeah yeah okay I got you Caleb you know that's interesting I had a conversation with somebody this week and it really struck me how we use that word God's will that phrase so much but. It's, it's something that helps us relate to God more than the other way around, because, you know, even to have a will to desire something for the future um, has a temporal aspect to it. So in that aspect, um, does God's will get accomplished? Of course. But is it is it will in the sense that we think of it? I'm I'm not so sure that it is, because. Uh, if he knows how things can play out, if he has that middle knowledge of, of all possible outcomes, then uh, is it is it really will or is it more his nature that uh, drives these things? So I've had some interesting discussions about that this week. Surprised <laughs> it came up here, too. Wild, wild. Dale, what did you think about Caleb's response? 
Uh, yeah, so I, I do think I, I disagree with it. Like, obviously, I've been saying, like, yeah, I, I've come to this conclusion. Yeah, I, I would definitely say it's logically possible for God to sin. He, he has the power to do... I, I didn't understand your distinction between everything and anything. Like, that, that just sounds synonymous to me. Like, no, no. Um, well, we would say, or I would say, that there are things that are logically impossible... Um, right. So like a squared circle or a married bachelor. Right. I would say God's sinning is is like that. He can't sin because his nature is absolute good. Um, you know, he's the standard of goodness. So I would that's how I would attack. It. I think it would be uh, logically impossible for God to sin because of his very nature. So that's kind of what I mean. God can do everything which is logically possible. He just can't do anything. Gotcha. Yeah, uh, yeah, that makes sense. It, we're, we, and we are kind of saying the same thing, but like, it's just I'm making this distinction because of his nature. That just makes it metaphysically or broadly, logically impossible. So in that sense, it's not exactly like the square circle because that's logically impossible, right? There's there isn't a single world, but we're, we are at the end of the day, we are both agreeing that in one way or another, it is impossible for God to sin. Uh, yeah. So why wouldn't you think it's logically impossible though? If if something's like pure good, why couldn't why why could he why couldn't it be logically impossible? Like a squared circle or or a uh, married bachelor. Well, because it it is logically possible for a good um, person or free will agent to sin. There's a logically possible world where no contradiction is entailed. Um, where God can tell a lie or something like that. I, I don't see a contradiction in that, um, it, it, at least at the level of logical possibility, right? Well, I would, I would, yeah, and that's where probably I would disagree is because I think that, uh, I mean, it depends on, I, I guess, what you're, you're operating on as far as your definition of, of purely good, you know, and perfection and stuff like that, so... Uh, I would that that would have to be defined, I think, before we could really continue on that that line of thought. Caleb. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a that's a good point. Um, because if God is the supreme being, the most supreme being, and is all good, then that sin immediately disqualifies him from being God. Um, he would no longer uh, exist as God. I don't think if he if he were to sin. Yeah. Okay. And, and like and then like like how I said too, Dale. Uh, like, you know, I'm I still have I'm still a, a moral agent. I think I'm a free moral agent that has free will, right? So I can do those things uh, that are logically within. I can exercise that free will. Uh, within the bounds logically of what I can do, basically. And then, you know, um, but I can't do something like change my nature. I can't violate who I am because it would make me not me anymore, right? <laughs> then who knows what, what all weirdness that would entail. <laughs> I mean, we can change our nature. Right? Like Adam and Eve changed their nature. They didn't have a sin nature, and they ch freely chose to sin, and they changed their nature. They acquired a sinful nature so it is possible to change your natures 
see, see, that's where I would we the, even we're we're mixing definitions there on nature. I'm talking about they they didn't stop being human. You know, that's what I'm uh, talking about. Okay, you know, that's what I'm using that in the sense of so. But anyways, uh, Caleb Jackson is here with us. The other Caleb, as we say. Uh, uh, what's going half. on, brother? Pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks. Well, I just got out of some stuff. So happy to be here now. Yeah, well, we, we keep waiting for Danny, but I don't know if he's going to end up showing. I don't did know he, if he's... Did he agree to this? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, absolutely. One thing, um, just one last thing on the last thing, and then I'll show up about it, but... What one thing? No, I... Dale. That time has passed. We're talking to Caleb. Okay. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I just wanted to say, like, my, my uncomfortableness <laughs> is just I don't want to say that God's nature determines God. Then he's not free. He, he, we can't say that he's free. You, you have to choose one or the other kind of thing. So that's that's the reason why I'm hesitant. Yeah, and and that's the thing is like I understand that, but like. What is what is free will then at that point? I mean, it, you know, I, like I said, I still have the ability to do whatever is logically possible within um, the realm of what I can do, what I'm capable of, right? So, I mean, I'm still free. Um, it just depends on what you're you're using as, you know, the boundary of what freedom really is. Like, how can Paul be free in prison, you know, type of thing, like he says, I think, in Ephesians. But, uh, but yeah, that's kind of like where I was coming from. Um, yeah. All right, cool. But, yeah, so Caleb, yeah, Danny's not here yet. I don't know if he thought it was Saturday or what, but usually he shows up, so I'm not. So no, just kind of winging it right now. We yeah, are just... winging it. We are just asking questions. I started off with does God have free will um, mm -hmm. question that I was going to ask Danny and, you know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. so yeah, how was I, but... <laughs> I think that God has free will. Sorry, I didn't know if we we're moving past that or if that's. No, no, you can answer it. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I didn't hear all of Dale's answer, but uh, I, I, I take. Um, I, mean, I take it an indeterministic model of free will, but I I'm okay with like proximate compatibilism or sourcehood compatibilism, but I'm not a full determinist. I do think that there's some determinacy, right? So, um, but I, I don't think that the principle of alternative possibilities is necessary for every action to be free, from what I can tell. Right on, right on. Um, so what have you been working on, Caleb? I mean, How's there's not much that. It's it's been fine. It's been really busy with work, um, so not that much to uh, to update. So, uh, I've got to be on the news for like two seconds because they were doing one of our committees for work, and I was in the background. So there's <laughs> that. But uh, yeah, no, it's have your autograph. <laughs> you can have it in the book, and you can get a whole a whole nickel for it. You know, nice value. Yeah. Right on. Well, if you hadn't noticed, we have hit that thousand uh, subscriber mark, which I'm congratulations. Really Thank you, sir. We are uh, moving along. So, yeah, man, I'm really excited about that. And, you know, like I was telling the guys, it's just feels like a sense of accomplishment, you know? Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So, I, do you have, uh, what did you have prepared tonight that you're going to ask? I did not have anything prepared, to be honest. I just got done You're eating, and I was just gonna. Well, that's when Clubhouse when I interact. Usually, it's just winging it. Typically, there's not a uh, a set conversation. Sure. Oh, right. Yeah, that's typically how it goes. How's other Caleb doing? 
Doing good. Hanging in there. It's good. Right like on. you've so, been busy with work. What was that? Like you've been busy with work. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> All right. So next question. Hey, Dale, what do you what did you have prepared? What was the series? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So basically, I, I was interested in kind of probing him. He had a video on the contingency argument for God. So basically, he was debating with someone and his main reason for rejecting the contingency argument. The only one he raised in that video was he rejects the principle of sufficient reason um, because he believes that leads to modal collapse. Um, so, yeah, I had a series of, of questions for him. Like, first of all, just to say, like, you know, define why do you think it leads to modal collapse? Um, yeah, so, like, I don't know how you want me to do this. I guess ask, asking you guys, do, let me ask you guys, do, do you guys think that, do you guys believe in the principle of sufficient reason? And if so, does that lead to modal collapse in your view? Caleb, I'll hand it to you. Which first. one? Jackson. Oh, okay. To compete now. Uh, <laughs> I would hold to like a weak PSR. Um, so you can have things like free will and stuff that really doesn't have a, a reason, but you could explain it with, you know, God gave us that range of ability. So it's not a complete misnomer, but there is some, uh, some weakness in that. But yeah, I do, I do think that there's a general PSR uh, and but because there's that indeterminacy, because God has that freedom, I don't think it leads to modal collapse. Um, some things I think are entailed by that, sure, but I don't know why modal collapse is typically seen as a negative thing. I mean, I guess the intuition is that it seems like things could have been different, right? But um, but the theist doesn't have to deny that if they think God has some kind of freedom within a certain range. So, right on. Next, we've got Travis Worth. What's going on, big guy? Hey, doing pretty good. Uh, just got here. Uh, not really sure uh, what exactly we're doing here, but I thought I'd just show up and hang out and uh, throw my two cents into whatever we're uh, talking about. All right. No, that's cool. Yeah, well, you know, we had a uh, a show with Danny, but I don't know if he thought it was a Saturday or, or what. Oh, but... okay. <laughs> so I, I've been trying yeah, to get a so, hold I of mean... him. But... <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, I just love the uh, discussions around the philosophy of religion. Uh, you know, I have a real passion for uh, studying that. So, yeah, man, I, I just love these type of discussions. So, did you hear? Did you hear Dale's question? Uh, yeah, I need to make. Is my uh, audio and everything okay? Yeah, yeah, I hear you perfectly. Okay, yeah, because it looked like I was skipping. Uh, no, uh, actually, I didn't. But, um, you know, just in general, I was saying I have a real love and passion for the philosophy of religion. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm up for, up for whatever kind of discussion. If we want to have something else, you know, that's fine, too. Right on. So, Dale, ask the question to Travis. Yeah, so um, after this, like, I, I wanted to get your take. I do have one other question for you guys afterwards. But my question mm -hmm. was related to the contingency argument, something that Travis. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. About, right? So um, I was watching a video from Danny at Phil talk and his main objection, he only had one objection to it. And he said, mm -hmm. uh, he said he presented there and he was saying, well, I reject the principle of sufficient reason. So ah, okay. he thinks it leads to modal collapse. So I was just mm. to you guys, do, 
Is that true? Okay. You, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. So um, that's really uh, interesting. You know, there are a number of philosophers who will uh, object to it, especially like a strong uh, PSR, right? Um, that's why I prefer Josh Rasmussen's principle of explanation. What he, he has a much more modest claim where he says, hey, look, you know, we explain everything that we can. So basically, if something seems contingent and it, uh, ha you know, if, if we could conceive of it having an explanation, then it probably does all things being equal. So uh, I would just appeal to Josh Rasmussen's more modest uh, principle of explanation and, and it can kind of cut around that. And so we're still, you know, uh, left with that contingency thing that, hey, you know, uh, you know, contingent things, you know, likely have a necessary foundation slash explanation for why they are. And so that's the route uh, uh, Rasmussen would take, which I, and I, I'm pretty sympathetic to that. Awesome. Right on. Caleb Johnson. You have anything on that? Can I pass? Can I pass? You can, of course you can. <laughs> what was no, your follow-up? Um, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to uh, look into that principle of explanation Travis mentioned. So. Yeah. Um, uh, one area where um, there, there's a um, a book, uh, the new uh, a new theist response to the new atheist, where Josh Rasmussen does his argument for a supreme foundation, and that's where uh, he really clearly lays out uh, the principle of explanation. He calls it PE for short. Uh, yeah, and, and it's it's very modest. It's just that uh, you know if, if something you know probably you know like other things being equal, um, you know if it likely would have an explanation, or we could if it's something we could conceive of as having an explanation, then it probably does. You know, all the things just being equal. So, right on, Dale. What was your follow up? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, well, just to answer that, I'll just quickly say, like, yeah, I, I agree with Travis and Caleb Jackson. Uh, look, I was going to be probing him. Look, there are different versions, and he's aware of this, of the principles. Oh, yeah. So we can adopt a weaker one, right? Uh, people like Alexander Proust, they, they try to say, well, only contingent facts need it or explanation. I don't even think we need to go to that level. I I just use the yeah, same. Yeah, and oh, good. Right, and Rasmussen's was even more modest than that. So it's like, at some point, no, we, we need to, you know, if something probably has an explanation for its, its existence, then, you know, we're, you know, being logically coherent and positing an explanation for its uh, its existence. So. Exactly. Yeah, so like I, in my own contingency argument, I, I use sort of a moderate one, but we can go even weaker, right? Like every contingent thing, I think that's what uh, the principle of explanation. That's what Bruce. Well, yeah, Bruce would say something like contingent facts. Uh, no, no, not, you know, not facts though. Like contingent things is the one. So it's even. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm sorry. You're right. Yeah, contingent things. Yeah, I'm sorry. Not facts. Yeah. No, no problem. Um, so yeah, I was going to ask about that. I was also going to ask, uh, what if we don't even posit an explanatory principle, um, but we use a causal principle to answer the Glendower problem? Um, but here. Mm. Yeah. So we got a we got a question from the audience here. You guys theistic? Yes, we are theistic. Uh, we host a number of different views on mm -hmm. different conversations and uh, see where the truth lies. And at the end of the day, you choose. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm an Orthodox Christian, so yeah. Yeah. 
Orthodox Christians. Caleb's just, a heretic. Uh, Orthodox Christians are just second-rate Catholics, but you know that's the... second-rate. Catholics. <laughs> yeah, we don't. And have Dale's a, pope, a, well, I mean, Dale's a straight <laughs> heathen. Uh, yeah. Both of Caleb's are heretics, right. and Travis yes. Worth is yes. just somewhere out in Mystic Land. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's yeah. a he's the a, divine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Actually, well, I did have a well. I, I had two things I, I was going to talk about, but if Dale wants to go and finish his point, I don't want to interrupt yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Dale. This, so this is the last question that I want. It's kind of, I think that um, there's been presented a modal argument that proves that at least the watered down version of the principle of sufficient reason that I'm using is not just true, but necessarily true. Um, mm. So I just so basically it comes. It, it's based on a reductio ad absurdum argument, right? So. It, it says, look, we, we, it's, let's just say for the sake of argument for reductio that it's possible that the universe could exist without an explanation. Um, mm -hmm. Well, it's also uh, logically possible that the universe exists with an explanation kind of thing, right? right. That would be possible. Um, so, mm -hmm. and then there's this uh, principle in philosophy, you know, logically possible things or states of affairs can be false, even though they're possible. Yeah, that's self mm -hmm. self evident, right? Known mm -hmm. as the Bauer axiom. Um, and so basically, it, uh, it's saying, look, a there's a possible world where the universe exists without an explanation and possible worlds where the universe is, exists with an explanation. Well, what differentiates those worlds, there has to be something in the set of true things or facts in that world that account for why the universe exists with an explanation versus not. So therefore it requires an explanation. Um, so in that possible world, the universe both exists without an explanation and also has an explanation that's contradictory, that's rid ridiculous and absurd. So that's how that modal argument works. But yeah, I just wanted to put it to you guys what you guys thought of that. I'd have to think about that in terms of like having the necessity of the universe be like um, a predicate for existing in all, like necessarily existing in all mm. all worlds. But I mean, I have thought about that where if God is only metaphysically necessary, if not logically necessary, then any world in which God exists and he exists with aseity, you'd have to ask, but why is it, why is it this world and not some other world where God doesn't exist, right? So I think you do have to get to, I don't say you can get around the con you can accept a con contingency argument, but not accept like an ontological argument. So, God. yeah. That, so I, I, if that's kind of where you're coming from, that I can see the uh, the connection. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was gonna. Um, well, I had two two completely separate points. One of them was one of the uh, arguments uh, for universalism that we discussed in one of the chats, and the other one was which we can do the second one first. Um, I don't know if you saw, so Mike Winger made a video, uh, and this was in a comment he had, he had made about Graham Oppie when someone asked him, how are they like really intelligent? Oh, yeah. And Joe right. Schmidt and Joe Schmidt made a video yeah. responding to that. Yeah. And then Kyle Allender and, um, apologetic squared and I made a video responding to, to Joe Schmidt and agreeing with okay. him on some areas. So I just got good. I, I know that you probably, not all of you probably have, well, I think Travis probably is aware of what I'm talking about, but I don't, yeah. Not, but um, like, well, what do you think about that in terms of like, does the existence, does the idea that at least the existence of God is like certainly debated in philosophy or religion, that there are re like really intelligent non-believers okay. who at least appear to be rational, even if they 
we might have honest disagreements. Does that like, should we remain agnostic? Should that do anything for our, should that make us hesitant to accept that on either well, side or how does that work? Yeah, I mean, in a sense, but um, not too much because I could, uh, you know, you could say like, well, first of all, you know, there was a huge mistake that um, he made in terms of Oppie. So Oppie, uh, you know, he compares theories in light of their theoretical virtues. It's not that he right. appeals to intuition. I had to get that off my chest. But uh, yeah, yeah. So, so um, I mean, you could look at it. You could say like, well, you know, you have people like Oppie and, and Draper that are brilliant philosophers of religion and they find naturalism to be the most plausible explanation of reality and, and so forth. But then you could just as easily say, yeah, but I mean, then again, you have people like Swinburne and Rasmussen who seem mm -hmm. to answer them very well, uh, arguably better even than. They, and, and so, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't you know, it, it's more uh, why they disagree with us than that they disagree with us. Because, I mean, you can find brilliant scholars on both uh, sides. And um, it, it's uh, kind of like what Josh Rasmussen would say that um, I think. Uh, there's a, a very powerful elithic value uh, to, to this disagreement because what it can do is it can shave away arbitrary aspects of our own view when we let the light of reason shine on, onto our, our path. And that's what a lot of these uh, atheological arguments can do in the philosophy of religion is, you know, they really help us, you know, home in on, on what our own theory is. And, uh, you know, uh, I think they're a blessing in disguise, uh, hmm. actually. So. I don't know if that answers what you or you're going for. Or... Sort of, yeah. I, I think it it did, okay. um, probably in a more profound way than I could have said. But oh, uh, yeah. I don't know if anyone else had any thoughts on that. <laughs> he just has uh, the hots for Rasmussen, so you're gonna <laughs> yeah. I tell you, I mean, but who yeah. doesn't? It, right? yeah, yeah, Rasmussen and and uh, even uh, Swinburne. Hey. I... <laughs> Like yeah. older too. Travis just has a big like portrait of Swinburne in his living room. Like, oh, is that your like grandfather? It's like, no, it's just a philosopher. I like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no relation. Yeah, yeah. I got like an icon of <laughs> he has right. stained glass of Richard Swinburne. <laughs> yeah. Anybody else want to take a stab at that one? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in here real quick. Um, you know. I don't think it cre it doesn't create any issues for me within my view. I, I agree with Travis that I th there's no reason for us to fear looking at things rationally. Uh, if we if we really dig for the truth on things, then we I, I honestly believe as Christians, we have nothing to worry about. And some of the smartest people I've ever talked with hold different views than I do. Um, I've met some brilliant atheists, just like I've met some brilliant Christian. Um, but, you know, we we reach different conclusions and that's kind of how yeah. life is. So mm -hmm. it doesn't really create any uh, problems for me in regards to my Christianity. Um, right. But, you know, anything I can learn from somebody else helps give me another angle to look at truth with. So does it does it right. create problems, though, if for like the potential consequences like if some like if you were talking to an atheologian and they're like i respect your views and i get that but i i just can't find myself to be convinced by these arguments like and is, mm. does that mean i'm going to go to hell or, or be separate from christ just because I, I happen to ultimately not be persuaded by it right like is that kind of the idea of like because the stakes are so high that such reservation should be kind of a bigger deal mm. 
Yeah, you know, I think that's interesting because if we take a, a version of Pascal's wager, not the traditional one, but if we use Pascal's wager to compare mm -hmm. various religions and the outcomes of those religions, then yeah, that's that's a great discussion to have with somebody, I think, um, who maybe holds to that kind of view. Um, right. But um, I still don't think that, I think God ultimately works all things to his good. Whether, whether that means universalism, um, I'm undecided on that. But I think that given time, people will get to the point that they need to be in relationship with God. Or uh, should they totally reject that? They totally reject that. You could be the smartest person in the world and, and still reject that if, if you don't take it from a head to a heart thing. There are plenty of uh, Christians and Christian apologists out there who are so intellectual on it. But if you never take it back to the heart and the belief mm -hmm. of actually taking those steps in faith, um, then it's it's pointless to even have that Christian inter, um, rationalization as well. You know, um, yeah, as I was thinking about that and kind of like uh, to kind of go back to what I said, uh, one way uh, I can see that, uh, you know, um, atheologians are very valuable to theism is uh Let's take something like uh, the problem of evil and the problem of hell, right? So you have two like pretty good atheological arguments. Well, you know, when uh, the best theistic philosophers, you know, it, it makes us, uh, you know, really start doing our, our intellectual homework. And so you have someone like Trent Doherty who will come up with uh, like the saint seeking story under the defeat condition. Right. And what it can do is it really like trims. Uh, the version of theism where we have a more robust view of theism. And then like with the problem of hell. So you have something like the defeat condition with uh, likely in telling universalism uh, mm -hmm. and po post-mortem soul building. So I like that uh, when we address the, these issues, they can really you know, like narrow in um, a, a more coherent version of theism, mm -hmm. I would argue. You know, I agree with that. And that that's why I, you know, that's kind of why I argue for that position yeah. like, it seems more consistent to me but i guess that gets into the second thing we're going to get to then which was that about the um oh hold on was it we got a question from the audience ray we are going to get to this question now real quick uh caleb's actually the guy to talk to he's actually writing a book on miracles <laughs> mm -hmm. so do we believe in supernatural claims from other groups in antiquity mm. besides the jews and the christians i have no problem believing that there's other supernatural claims um, of course, every claim I, I like to examine each one specifically, um, and it's hard to do with ancient antiquity in some cases, I'm um, sure. But yeah, I, I don't have a problem with God working. If there is a God and God is real, then yeah, absolutely. I think he would work in other cultures as well. Yeah, I'll just uh, comment briefly and uh, hand it over uh, to you guys because I don't have too much to say here. Uh, but there are a few things. So, um, you know, in fact, this kind of, you know, uh, in Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, especially, you know, we hold that there are a lot of these uh, mystical uh, experiences and, uh, you know, religious miracles and things like that. And I think it's also compatible, compatible with like Michael Heiser's view of uh, the divine council and how, you know, according to that theology, like certain uh, angelic type forces or 
over certain nations. And so that's perfectly consistent um, within my theology to say, yeah, uh, there are like these deities of these other cultures, you know, uh, that could be doing miraculous things. So theologically speaking, um, I don't really have a problem with it. I just say, let, let it stand on its own merits. Really. Yeah. Um, I think in principle, I don't have an issue with certain kinds of miracles and other religions. Um, but in terms of like, do I think that the evidence is there? And I, I, we can talk about ancient antiquity. We can even talk about modern day. I mean, like, you know, I, I think that there'd be better evidence for something like Hindu, Hindu gurus during, during, uh, I can't talk today, doing like miraculous feats, quote unquote, like India or something than we would in the ancient world. But I think there's parallels there, but I'm open to it. But I, I think from the cases we have, I don't think the evidence is as good. And part of that's just because the Western world just has better documentation overall. And part of that's just because it's hard to find good sources for a lot of this stuff and a lot of good investigation. But you do have claims in the ancient world, like the healings of Asclepius or something. But even when you look at something like uh, Vespasian, the Roman emperor who famously healed a blind man and a crippled man, Tacitus, the historian who's talking about this, says, now, you know, the guy wasn't actually blind. He had uh, something in his eyes that Vespasian took out. And the, and the guy who was crippled had his arm dislocated and it was just put back in. But the people believed this and thought it was a miracle, you know. So even back then, you kind of have ones where people were like, oh, that's a miracle. And it was really like kind of your standard faith healing stuff. Um, so it's hard to rule a lot of that out as well. But you just have to look, you have to set your criteria beforehand and look at it on a case by case basis is what I would say. Yeah. Hey man, just what I said, but you said it yeah. way more eloquently. <laughs> yeah. Uh Caleb Johnson. Yeah. Um, so I I have some uh, history in the prestidigitation world as as a magician and kind of being with those kind of crowds. So uh, I spent a lot of time more on the modern stuff, comparing modern miracles, modern miracle claims to uh what we have and you know i i honestly don't have a problem running into a real miracle from another religion it's it's just then the question is do we have a source of power that adequately explains this in christianity and as travis mentioned you know in the divine council view we do believe there are other forces present working yeah. uh, both for and against god in some sense so uh it's not not a catch-all like uh caleb said you got to look at it on a case-by-case -case basis as to sure. what each of these situations is but i think we do have adequate explanations for uh, a lot of those situations Right, that aren't that aren't even inherently supernatural. I mean, you can say some of them might be, but that doesn't mean that they like that should be the Christian's default of well, maybe it's some other supernatural being. Like it's a possibility, but I think that you should, you know, try to include fraud or legend or exaggeration first. Yeah, or like absolutely. how dare you? How dare you even suggest that? Right, but we're yeah, not, just kind of let credulity. We're not advocating. You should say you should believe every supernatural claim you hear. Right. No, I right. would do the same uh, thing for Christian miracle yeah, claims. Right, I, right. I look at them as being, uh, look at them skeptical first too. Regardless. For every one I for every one I can give you that I think is legitimate, I can probably well, give you a seven that are not. So I want to get to the to our word of faith guy, Dale Glover, who believes that the shroud was a medieval miracle. So I want to give him a chance oh, to respond. That's interesting. I don't. I don't believe. 
but I'm, I'm he's open being facetious. <laughs> okay. Before I get to that stuff, we can talk about the shroud. That's great. But to answer her question, uh, or yeah, Rhea's question, um, do I actually believe in the supernatural claims of other groups in antiquity? It doesn't necessarily religious. Absolutely, I do. Acts chapter 16, verse 16 to 24 talks about Paul and his experience with the slave girl who has a, a demon, demonic spirit and is actually predicting the future. That's supernatural, if you ask me. So, yeah. yes, I, I do believe. Um, obviously, that's on the basis of scripture and that sort of thing. But um, I think that the, uh, the, the main question here is, look, I, I differentiate different types of miracles and miracles for certain purposes. I, I tend not to be interested in... in or I didn't research like Caleb Jackson miracles for other purposes like compassion or you know miracle healings and stuff like that. So you know thank thank goodness people like Caleb and Craig Keener are out there doing that aspect. I focus on miracles that the purpose is to authenticate the Christian religion. And on that front, I've studied a lot of claims and I have not found a single one apart from miracles for Christianity that actually fulfill the criteria for being authentic. So yeah, the shroud is a, a case in point on that front. Even if it happened in the Middle Ages. Even if it happened, <laughs> even if it happened in the Middle Ages. Uh, um, this is an inside joke between me, me and Dale, guys. So. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's okay. I, I don't. I don't want to hold off on on this too long because I want to go on to something else. But just just to to ask on that because I know that Dale's open to that view. I think from a theological standpoint, it. I just can't wrap my head around that in terms of what. Like I could see if, if the shroud of Jesus was left that way to like vindicate the resurrection, but I can't make sense in terms of God's reasoning as to why he would ex nihilo put an image on a medieval shroud in order to convince people that it was, you know, from the first century. So like especially people who are already religious, people who already accept the Christian religion predominantly. Like if it's not leading to I think I think one aspect of a vindication miracle is that it needs to occur in a culture that is mostly not open to it or that it's changing minds right so jesus resurrected from the dead in jerusalem that, that that's one example muhammad even though i don't believe muhammad was a prophet theoretically that would be one uh joseph smith would theoretically be one most religious claims even vindication ones happen in a context where people already accept the religion like especially like hindu mm -hmm. gurus it's another example um like this is another criticism i have like eucharist miracles right like why are eucharist miracles always occurring primarily in, in not only just catholic settings but that are really only being talked about by Catholic. They're not like really being, you know, where a priest comes and does this in front of a bunch of Protestants and it changes their mind. Like I, mm, I think that yeah. I think the point of a vindication miracle, it would be expected this would happen in a culture that would that would like give the message to not a culture that already is prone to believe it. I, that that to me is kind of a red flag. So that's that's one thing I would say in terms of why I would be theologically very hesitant to accept God just doing a vindication miracle in a culture that's already privy to Christianity. Okay, well, well, bear in mind, it's not just for that culture because it has survived today and stirp has happened in our atheistic modern culture where we have the actual evidence and proof that it is a miracle. So that's, we have to take it all throughout time consideration, not just the culture. Secondly, even the culture in the medieval era, that was Catholicism and I would be very uh, concerned to say like, oh, well, Catholicism proper is Christianity. Um, no, may, maybe Jeffrey de Charny was 
for whatever reason, I, we can just make up whatever scenario we want, right? But he he needed that miracle, and he got it for God in His providence did that, um, and that converted him. He he was had enough to come to saving faith or something, and you know this strengthened the faith, and through time we had stirp and this led to a bunch of people including atheists agnostics jews coming to faith in god who i know personally and have told me that because of the shroud they believe I don't that's know. cool that's cool um i want to get back to caleb's original question uh that that he had first and caleb if you could just restate it one more time uh, the, the I one kind of, or kind of the, went off the oppie one or the second one about universalism this, about universalism oh, oh yeah, yeah so this yeah. This was a this is kind of an argument that I've been thinking about with Andrew Horonich. Um, if you know him, he's the he's writing a big book on on universalism right now. He's been on Cameron's channel before. Cool guy. Mm -hmm. um, and so yeah, yeah, I was thinking about like could we formulate an argument to where it kind of takes the idea of like here are worlds in which God could and couldn't create, and it basically gets you sort of to an a priori acceptance of universalism where it's like either god should not create at all or god should create a world where universalism is true but you shouldn't mm. have something in between that's kind of the point of it so the premise it's not like i can't do it purely in a syllogistic form but the, the main premises i think the first one that i don't think would be overly controversial is that god being all perfectly good would want to actualize the most valuable states of affairs and there may not be a single best possible world, but there are at least kinds of possible worlds, right? I, don't, I know Travis probably wouldn't disagree with that um, in, in that way. So that's that's not right. the premise. The second one, the second two parts, I think, might be a little more debatable. So the first principle is that I don't think the existence of persons in and of itself is necessarily a good thing. It can be a good thing, but like God is not doing something mm. immoral by not creating more persons and you, and people who choose to not have kids are not doing something immoral by not bringing forth more image bearers of God. Right. And of course there are worlds we can think of where if God just, create, if God, yeah, if God just created people just to torture them, let's say in a, in a, in a possible world that even though there would be image bearers of God in that world, that that wouldn't be a good world. If it was just torture with no kind of redemption. Right. So I think that the point of, of this is that like persons are valuable, but persons who can grow, and grow closer to God and morally develop her are the most valuable, right? So I, th that's the one. The second point is that um, free will in the way that it is, is, is a good, it's a valuable good, but it's only good in the context of soul making and, and moral improvement to an end. So we can imagine a world where God gives people absolute libertarian freedom, but let's say that there is no uh, connection between it. So every time, uh, David, let's say, is created by God, and David can choose between good or evil action. There's a little girl. He can either smack her in the face or he can give her a hug, right, let's say. Every time David does the action, whichever one, he his memory is wiped, and he goes right back to it again, and he has to make the decision again, make the decision again. So under this way, you'd get, you do get libertarian free agents who can do good or bad with libertarian free will. But that wouldn't really be a good world because you're not growing from it. You're not, you're not building a character. You're just an, uh, essentially a random number generator who is just randomly doing good, bad, good, good, bad, you know, with no, no rhyme or reason. Whereas even if, even under libertarianism, if you develop a character and get more mature and get more predictable as you get older, I think that's, that's a better good. Right. So, so that's, that's the second point. So, so the analogy there is that, um, okay, under universalism, this does have an end to it, but under the two, you know, eventually you, you do keep striving towards that. But under the two other models, which are conditionalism and eternal conscious torment, 
on conditionalism, this soul making process is just cut off eventually. It just stops happening and it's essentially mm -hmm. to the memory wipe. And under the ECT one, it almost goes in the opposite direction to where the person never is able to actually progress in the soul making. They either grow further from God or they stay stagnant. And so uh, both of those seem to violate that principle of, of progression in that way. And so it's so the idea is that free will is only a good thing. It only ultimately, or at least it's most valuable if it's in this way that can lead to moral progression, not simply just doing a moral action freely. And that's it. So if, if you're accepting those two premises, then God really would want to actualize a world in which everyone used their freedom to uh, morally grow and eventually come to this relationship with God. Um, God, if God, and if God does a world where some people do, some people don't, he's not fulfilling that full potential. And of course, God could simply not create any world at all, and he wouldn't be doing anything inherently wrong with that. And so the, la the last point of that is, is that um, God is essentially gambling. Because you could say, well, God, yes, people might go to hell, but God would be depriving those people who he didn't create to go to heaven. But as we said, like de deprivation, like it is wrong to murder a person, but it's not wrong to not have that person, right? So deprivation, the person's not missing out. And of course, there's always people God doesn't create, right? He's, ne he's never created an actual infinite number of people. Um, so God's not doing anything wrong by not creating, but God would be doing something wrong by creating and having some fail. And there are, there are ethics to gambling, right? So you could say it may be worth it for some and not worth it for others. But the point is that if the stakes are that high, it would actually be wrong for God to make those bets with free will, essentially like that. That there are situations in which you wouldn't take a bet. If, it, if you could make a bet to where... Um, you can play a poker game. If you win, you can solve world hunger. But if you lose the bet, you have to sell your entire family into sex slavery for the rest of their lives. Or you can just not play the game at all. I think you'd probably just not take the chance to play the game at all, even if it could potentially lead to a greater good, right? Like, is it worth that risk? So is hell worth the risk of the good that comes with that? Or is God better off not creating? So yeah, in conclusion, the best options are either God chooses to not create at all or God chooses to create a world in which universalism is held, but anything in between would not be worth the risk of creating because the value would be uh, lost. So that's that's my thoughts. All right. So uh, let me let me jump on this first. Let me let me hand Dale. What do you think first? Because I we let Travis go go last time first and we'll let Dale go first this time. Okay, so um, sorry, Kill. Uh, do you mind just kind of like briefly repeating what what your question was? Sorry, <laughs> I, yeah, I was writing down notes from what. No, you was, was, it's a lot. That it, was so pretty yeah, long. Well, it was. It, it was. I need to come up with a syllogism. So basically, the short point is that this is an argument that God would either be better if God, if universalism is at least like feasibly, if there's a feasible world in which it can't happen, God is better off to not take the chance of creating creatures with free will that can reject Him at all. So it's either no creation or universalism but either mm -hmm. the ect model or the conditionalist model are not worth the risks and the arguments i gave for that are that principally one human beings are not inherently valuable like at least god's not doing anything wrong by not creating them and i gave arguments for that and two is that giving human agents free will to accept god is only good if they can do it to morally develop and spiritually grow and it's not simply just a random act that has no continuity and under ECT and conditionalism, eventually that continuity is either destroyed or is just made superfluous by being stagnant. And so um, universalism is the only one that actually gets you to that. So um, those are the only kinds of goods God would want to make is ones with persons who can have libertarian free will to grow and soul make. Uh, and the other models don't really allow for that in the ultimate sense. So that's the shortened version. Okay, so I'll answer the last part first. So, um, so I would disagree. I think that the eternal conscious torment 
view, not torture, but the quarant under the quarantine model, even in hell, we can uh, yeah. utilize our free will to, at least in principle, develop our characters. Now, the fact that the Bible tells us that's not going to happen as a matter of fact doesn't mean that it couldn't happen. So hypothetically, they could um, uh, pay for their sins and choose to live good lives in hell. I think that Dale, are are you talking about the separationist view? Just for yeah, the, the Gary Habermas, like the C.S. Lewis kind of yeah, the quarantine separate. model exactly. Okay. Yeah, um, so so I believe they they could potentially. Now, obviously, the Bible tells us that that's not going to happen as a matter of fact. But yeah, like I don't think I don't take the view that they're locked in their sinfulness and that the punishment is just happening for no reason. So in principle, they could, if it's just yeah. that they won't. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Do you think God knows? I don't know. You're not an open theist. Are you, Dale? Do you think God knows that some people will not, will be in that state forever? Uh, of course. Yeah. That's what I was just saying. Like the, the Bible divine revelation tells us that that's just not going to be the case that they're going to, take that so so yeah but hypothetically they could they just like won't. it's possible it's just not feasible i guess you could say yeah yeah i mean it's not feasible given their free will so they they just as a matter of fact won't choose to to stop sinning in hell and they're just going to keep earning more and more punishment and corrupting their their souls more and more so why okay so then that gets to the point of why is that kind of freedom an inherent good because i understand it has the entailment of but you can also use it to accept God, right? But I, I think, as I said, that like having the free will to simply ha bring about a good action is not itself a great good unless it comes with this kind of moral progression. Because if God just makes us where he creates us and we do one good act and then we're in heaven, or where we do good one act, forget it, do another act, forget it, and there's no connection, it's equally random, that, that doesn't seem like that would be a good thing to have in terms of value. So I, I think mm. you have to have this idea where there are moral persons. And in this, in the ECT case, they're kind of being deprived. They're, they're depriving themselves given their freedom of that ability to progress, or at least they're not seeing it fulfillment. And so having that where that's a possibility doesn't seem like it's a very good thing overall. So, so yeah, so I, I would answer. Oh, okay. Yeah. I would, I would answer that, that first part of your question. So, so number one, um, you're kind of assuming that like overall the net of being in hell in isolation is is bad and doesn't come attached with some goods. Maybe, maybe people in hell would see some goods. Now, I tend to agree with you that in isolation, the any goods that come about in hell, like people living their lives the way they want to, they have their autonomy or something like that. So um, it's not going to be overall goodness. We have to weigh that against the goods that come about only through creating this, this universe, whereby the maximum number of free will creatures choose to be saved and mm -hmm. the way i argue is that based on the overall utility so so yeah you've got so many people in hell so let's say by you know the world where god exists alone let's say that that's 10 a grade of a utility of 10 okay and then by creating this specific world rather than a universalist world yes we've got the negative two because we've got the people or negative five whatever you want to put it as because of people in hell but we've also got the plus five of more people being in an eternal, loving, saving relationship, which is better than just God alone. So it equals out to 10, you know, 10 minus five plus five equals out to 10. And that makes it a free choice on God's part to choose to create or to not create. Both have an equal overall 
utility. But isn't but in, isn't the difference though is that God is basically gambling with someone else's uh, autonomy at that point by actualizing that world, whereas if it was just him, it would only be up to him and his responsibility. Um. Okay. Say that again, the first part. Yeah, so like the, the last part of the argument was that like there are uh, ethics to gambling and that when I say gambling, I'm referring to like the indeterminacy of free will. So I know you're not an open theist, but like if God, let's say even under Molnus view where God has this, like he can see all of it before actualizing it and make that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, in order for God to even choose to actualize it, he is taking some kind of compromise, some kind of gamble. And I'm saying that there are instances where even if it comes a great, a great good, uh, we still would not, it would still be immoral for you to take that bet and, and do that. And I, I gave the example of if you could t- play a poker game where if you win, you can uh, solve world hunger. But if you lose, all of your family has to be sold into horrible sex, slavery, and torture the rest of their lives. Or you could choose to not play the game at all. You probably wouldn't play the game at all and not take that risk, even if it could potentially bring out a greater good, right? Even if that good is immeasurable. I mean, the amount of people who would get food would be far greater than the number of people who would have to be sex slave. But I think that would still be such a horrible evil that we wouldn't want to risk that and, and do a completely utilitarian view of it. So that's kind of the, the parody of that to say that even if you can bring about a, a large number of good through this, the the badness of hell wouldn't make that risk, uh, for, especially for eternity, wouldn't make that risk worth it taking at that point. Yeah, yeah that's so that's where I would just deny it. And I'll shut up after this and give it to Travis. But Well, uh, I no, I, I wanted to ask you a question, Dale. Oh, okay, cool. Travis is sort of helping me out here. I think he, I think he's the thing is that the the bats of hell are not are are worth taking it in my view. They're not as bad as you're you're making it seem, kind of thing. I I don't think people in hell are going to be. Yes, it's going to be torment and stuff like that. I'm not denying that it's. Oh, it's going to be like heaven, but I'm just saying it's it's not going to be like as bad as you're making it seem. It's not analogous to like oh well I can save the world, but I've got to rape babies or something like that are there are there met are there worlds are there like hypothetical versions of hell that you would say it would be immoral for that like okay there was billions of people saved in heaven but like let's say that hell was actually this fiery torture chamber and only five people went there would that would you still take that risk or do you think that would be one where you don't think it'd be worth it in this type i know it's not what you think but in this type like do you concede that there are situations in which you wouldn't take those risks and that you just don't think this is analogous or would you say no? I would still take that bet with five people being tortured in hell versus billions who are saved. Uh, yeah, so on free will. The is I do think that there are ones where the cons outweigh the negative, and God could yeah. not create those wor- worlds. Mm-hmm. So but, it's just going to be a subjective idea of what what's how bad is the negative versus how good is the positive, I guess. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think like, for example, if we had the traditional understanding of hell, like the torture chamber model, where the majority of people are being tortured for like mindlessly and mind numbing pain and stuff like that, uh, that would not justify any amount really. I, I like, again, I, I allow for the possibility, but I'm at least 95% certain that would not be a good enough world. God could not create that world. Right. Now, I agree with you on that, but that's kind of what I'm trying to say. Like, this is almost like an anti-natalist argument, which is kind of interesting. But it's the idea that if you're not creating, like, by God not creating the righteous, he's not depriving, I mean, deprive in the way that, like, it's not like they're missing out where they are, they're aware that they're missing this, right? It's not like you can, you're not, you're not harming someone by not birthing them or not creating them. 
but you are harming someone by putting them in that situation, even if they freely choose it. So I guess the idea that God really isn't losing, I mean, he may not be actualizing total value, but he's also not losing anything when it comes to not creating. And so it's just going to how you balance the numbers, I guess, at that point. So that's her. I just feel like that just has such a nihilistic view of the damned though, where they're almost disposable, where it's like, I had to, you have to, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs and you were the, you were the cracked eggs in this case. <laughs> yeah. You should read, you're basically making the argument that Chris Byron did for, for my mm -hmm. master's thesis on the evil God challenge. He, he yeah. said exactly that argument that you you're making. So, mm -hmm. um, which yeah. I didn't read. So it, it is, okay. you know, it's, you think your thoughts are original and then it's like, oh no, someone, else <laughs> did before you. someone was there. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Travis, you've been trying to ask me something for a while. So, right. Um, so, you know, um, I, I, I do like where Caleb is, is kind of trying to go with this. It reminds me of, uh, Nevin Kleimanhaga has a paper called mm -hmm. infinite value in the best of, uh, in the best of all possible worlds. And it uses universalism as a key premise, you know, that God will create, uh, like, let's say a finite, uh, number of good things, but he will just, uh, eat, eternally increase value and just keep creating, creating, creating like infinite. So he infinitely creates infinite value. Um, which is, um, you know, I think we want to say that God would, uh, you know, seek to like create a finite uh, number of valuable things and then just eternally increase their value. And so that's a way that it, it's plausible that he can, you know, create a world with infinite value. But, um, what, uh, you know, because while I am a, a universalist, I'm also sympathetic to like the model you were talking about, uh, Dale, with sort of like the C.S. Lewis separationist uh, type view. And I, I don't think... Uh, it's successful in showing, or I don't know, is it Caleb's argument is successful in showing that it's immoral to create that kind of world because, and it's like even Trent Doherty kind of chimed in on this with the defeat condition. You could say, you know, that um, the evils and sufferings of those individuals, you know, can be defeated and then just being aware that they could have uh, made the best of their, you know, opportune situations. And it plausibly, they even still could. It's just that they won't. So uh, it's, it's not clear to me that it's immoral for God uh, to create that kind of world. But what, what I would say, though, and, and this is where I think Caleb's argument uh, could take a more modest uh, view and kind of probably come out ahead because you just, just say like, uh, OK, well, even if that doesn't cancel uh, them out, let's uh, compare the two. Let's say both are uh, plausible, the universalist model or, um, you know, the uh, that view of, of hell. Um, it seems that if God is intent on maximizing value, he would go with the universal model. And so it seems like you could make an abductive case that, you know, given the two and given God's like perfect goodness, this seems the more plausible explanation. What do you think of that? Um, okay. So, so yes, in this hypothetical realm, right? Like let's yeah. say that we, could... if you're just comparing the two. Yeah. Yeah, like if we could have two worlds, right? So let, there's the God alone world, and then there's this world, and then there's mm -hmm. the, a third world where the same number, you know, let's pretend there's 5 billion uh, souls that get saved in this world, just for the sake of argument. But there's this other mm -hmm. world where there's 5 billion people that get saved and no one goes to hell. Um, the third world would have greater value. That would be better. Uh, in fact, mm -hmm. that would be... I might even argue that would be necessary for God. That's better than the God alone world. God would have mm -hmm. creation would be necessary if that was the case, but it's just right. not factually it's metaphysically uh, impossible for such a world to exist. 
because our right, right people people with their in order to be saved it, it requires a free will response on the human being that's part of the equation and it's just right so, will not so it, it it's kind of like this idea that um well in order to have a truly loving relationship with god there has to at least metaphysically speaking be the possibility of rejecting that uh is that what you're saying um or no you you aren't I, so i'm not making the swinburne argument there but I, i'm just kind of saying like in order to be saved free will is a necessary prerequisite that uh, like our making that choice is just how relationships work well, it, but if you hold to molinism it seems like god could just put you in, in like the uh the punishment phase of the afterlife in, in the uh right uh, punishments where he knows eventually you will but, freely. But Dale choose. could just deny. Dale could just say there's literally no feasible world in which that would work. That, like that is what right. I, so he's basically oh, okay. just taking a train. Right. So this this argument is actually sort of an extended version of Mackey's objection to the free will defense. Although it's much you know, it, ultimately, it's it's not saying that God can't actualize world with sin, but it's saying God can't actualize it ultimately to where that would be. And so I think the only way you could do is to take some kind of trans world depravity view where there's literally worlds in which. The person would never mm. become that, or okay. in a world in which they would, it would it would be a worse overall, and that's where. But then it gets then to me, I feel like the issue is like, how do we even have these connotations? Like, how is it like? Is a world <laughs> yeah. where let's say there's a world where there's only twenty people and all of them are saved? Is that better than a world where there's five billion people who are saved but there's a hundred million that are lost? Like, is it are we? Mm. Is it the ratio? Is it the percentage? Is it the exact number? Because God can always make one more person to save. Like how how are we determining these these value judgments? I feel like it seems arbitrary in terms of like how long does the person get to develop before they're judged? Like all all these all these right. can't I know. Don't, I don't. That, that's, that's oh, go ahead, Travis. Oh uh, well, I was going to say about that. That's why um, a lot of philosophers of religion will say that you know God creates like X amount of people, finite a finite number, and just uh, you know. He eternally increases the value right. of that finite. And so that way you have him creating an infinitely valuable world, even mm -hmm. with a finite number of people. So it's, yeah. And, and like I said, yeah, I, I would, uh, I had a point and I lost it, but uh, yeah, I'm so sorry. I had a response yeah. to Caleb's thing. Okay. David, do you have a, do you have anything to say in this or Caleb? I have a lot. I have I a know, lot. I feel like you've been sitting there for a while. I, 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 I was going <laughs> to hit it to Caleb first because I, I saw him stewing as well. And I have a lot to say on it, but I, I, uh -oh. I, I want to reserve judgment uh, I, and, and really evaluate it a little more. I, I think it's missing a lot. I think there's a lot missing in the argument. Um, of course, I'm not a universalist either. Right. Um, I do take pretty similar to Dale's view on, on the quarantine model and stuff like that. I think that... Mm. There is this, there is a lot, like when I was just looking at over, over the argument, cause I, you know, I copied it like Travis and pasted it. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't able to go over it as much, uh, you know, I'm finished shutting up the masters only got like one class left. And right. so I've been like dumping a lot into to studying and stuff and get ready for that thesis on the, uh, problem of evil. But, uh, more like point one, moral agents are not inherently valuable. I was going to ask you like more like, what do you mean by they're not inherently valuable? And this is, I'm also going, I'm not going to like answer what has already been answered right now. I'm just kind of asking you on clarity there. Yeah, that's a good question. So when I mean, they're not inherently valuable. I'm saying it is not simply that the best world is one where there's just the mo the greatest number of moral beings simpliciter. And that's it. There are situations where it would be better to not have like if having more 
agents would worsen their lives than some others, right? Or like if God made a world where more agents, but they were always being tortured or in pain, that wouldn't be a good world, right? Overall, or if if you know having kids is a good thing, but having too many would lead to you not being able to take care of your other ones, it would be better for you to not have those extra kids. So there are situations which it's better to not to not bring forth. Yeah, I get that part. Moral agents. Okay, so God is not doing anything wrong by not creating. That that's the point, right? He yeah. Not be actualized. If, if 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 it leads to the if it leads to a net bad overall, like it's not just saying oh God creates persons, it's good, it's it's a net gain of value no matter what is saying that's not always the case it can be a it could theoretically be a net loss depending on the situation right yeah so then i would yeah i would probably convert that to that point versus saying moral agents are not inherently value because that right off the bat it's like okay what do you mean they're not inherently valuable when intrinsically they carry the image of god Maybe i could say and what is that yeah like what is that what does that say when someone carries that value inherently mm -hmm. uh the image of God inherently within them or on them, you know, and, and they're right. made of the image of God. I mean, that, that but is if other, but if, but if the existence of them hurt, harms other image bearers of God, then that's where it would get. It's like, would you have a kid if you knew they were going to be a serial killer? Like if you could, like, would you choose to have that kid? Probably not. Um, I don't know. I, um, like, I know that they're going to die one day anyway, you know, um, and I do have them, Travis, you know, and then I'm like, also, I'm also thinking of the whole idea too, like with where does the atonement come into? Cause I was thinking a little bit on that mm -hmm. and it was like, okay, well, God, I mean, you know, knew what was going to happen to his son and sent him anyway, you know, right. and there, there's, there's just something, there's a lot more there that I think as a universalist, you're missing out on, um, um, and there's more to the story, basically. Uh, I think we have to rope in theology with an answer that's if – if I'm going to treat it – if I'm going to treat it like it should be, the argument like it should be, I'm not mm -hmm. going to be able to answer it philosophically, just philosophically. I'm going to need to also answer it theologically you mm -hmm. know, uh, because I, I think that plays in a very important role. Um, so, yeah, I mean th there's a lot of, of things I agree with with Dale. I think there's some things that – are necessary for relationships to exist. Like, I don't, I think you have to have free moral agents for love to exist. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, those things like that, those things come into play where they fit in an, in, in an art, in this argument and how I would compose an argument against it or polemic against it, that that's yet to be determined. So right, that's but, why you, you, but you know, liberty, you know, sorry, you know that universalists don't deny the existence of free moral agents that accept. Absolutely. That, right? I right. do. And yeah. yeah, absolutely. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not isolating. I'm yeah, really you're, not. you're not straw manning. It's, it's not like the, yeah, the Frank Turk absolutely. idea of, Oh, universalists yeah. think God's dragging you kicking and screaming into heaven. Right. Or no, like that. Like no, that's, no, yeah. that's I have a question for you, kind of thing, on this universalism thing, if you don't mind. Um, yeah. Um, okay, so so let's say that universalism is true here. When when you're comparing, okay, all 20 billion human beings who ever existed, they get saved. Obviously, the more our common sense is, the more loving people in an eternal, righteous, uh, worthwhile relationship that salvation posits on a Christian worldview. Mm -hmm. These are goods in and of themselves. So it, it looks like by God creating, there's only pluses. He's getting bonuses. So that would be better than God alone. That would mean that creation is necessary. Yeah. You know that creation is not necessary. So how do you reconcile that then? So I'm not sure what you mean by creation is not necessary. I think I would, I don't know what Travis's view on this, but I think that if you think that God 
needs to actualize a grace of affairs of value i think that creation is almost an entailment now god has freedom within that creation but i don't even i don't i i'm okay with there being a quasi multi collapse there um in that way mm -hmm. so I, I actually do think that it's entailed that about that a perfect being would create a world with inherently more value than not unless that world had you know a net loss of value or something like that but yeah i do think that god is gaining more value by creating not not to himself but just you know the actualizing the state of affairs right um by creating more more value in the long run um so that's that way. interesting so that that makes the creation of the universe almost logically necessary it's, it's logically entailed given mm -hmm. god is so okay bob cool like i i disagree with that because i think mm -hmm. the universe is contingent and stuff but that's interesting yeah thanks. well it's still it, well okay so when I, necessary that's it's entailed but you know it's not it's not i say it's not like the universe is the prime mover god is still the the explanation behind it so and it is it is partially contingent. I think there's aspects of it that are contingent. Like it could, God could have made more stars. God could have made a, a, a world with different physics. Like it's not like he has to make our exact universe. Um, we're just talking about the kinds. But um, if by necessary you mean like it's entailed by it, I would say yes. But that doesn't mean that the universe that like the contingency argument is ruled out because the universe is like the prime mover. Because a necessary thing can still require an explanation if it's dependent, right? Um, so yeah. dependency is 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 what's important here the universe definitely is dependent on god interesting so it's like a number then it's necessary dependent so um okay yeah it's like if you have a freezer if you have a freezer and there's ice in it and the freezers pass eternally exists necessarily then the ice that if the freezer is lower than 32 degrees well i know you're canadian zero degrees, <laughs> zero degrees celsius right uh and, and it has ice in it the ice isn't necessarily entailed by that but that doesn't mean that the ice doesn't have like is the final explanation i could explain it by saying oh well the freezer has these conditions to create the ice um so i gotcha. i don't think that's a problem i think it still requires an explanation so i i'm still on board with the contingency argument um i think travis might agree with that by the way but i have to ask him when he gets back all right cool yeah that so that's definitely a difference uh on our end but that yeah, it's, yeah. So i just wanted to clarify that so thanks. at least i'm consistent though right <laughs> you are consistent yep. yeah uh caleb yeah i'm gonna jump in here with another clarifying question so why would this argument not allow for an an annihilationist perspective yeah that's a good question so uh, the second point of that argument was to show that uh, so free will is a good thing if it leads to this kind of soul making character building. Right. Um, and that I think we would agree that it, it, free will where it's just you can make a good decision. And then, like, let's say your memory is wiped and they're all your free will decisions are independent of each other and doesn't have a character, doesn't have a story around it. That's not overly valuable compared to at least compared to the other model you could have where people have agency. I'm sorry. People have moral development and so the idea is that okay so like let's take that and let's extend it what if we could do two uh actions and our memory is wiped would that be good i don't know about five and then our, like every fifth one or like wh what number do we cut off to say okay now it is and i i'm saying that i i don't think there's any i think it's only consistent to have it keep keep building keep building so if it's just okay you get let's say the average person makes two hundred thousand moral decisions in their life and then they get annihilated when they die if they're not a believer um why was that any more valuable than two right like it, it in terms of it being potentially infinite which i think it is potentially infinite if eternal life is true so it's kind of the idea of like there's no there, there's a, there's this level of arbitrariness in terms of why destroy them here or why annihilate them at this point and not earlier and 
and what and why why is that a, why is it a good thing to make them go through this if in the end it's just gonna be wiped out and be ultimately pointless um and that goes to the suffering too i think suffering is meant to draw us closer to god in that way and if these people go through suffering ended up being annihilated anyway and it didn't amount to them hitting that goal then that suffering seems like it was unjust or unwarranted where if god knows that someone is not going to freely accept him i feel like it would be better for him to just have them have a life of bliss rather than have them have a life of struggle and all this stuff with freedom and then annihilate themselves um i, I don't see why that would be a good thing if that suffering doesn't amount to anything good ultimately so that's kind of the the argument there whereas universalism that suffering does amount to ultimate salvation with christ interesting i i would i would still push that further because even if the person does not have moral character building for themselves, mm -hmm. their collective uh, actions on society could ultimately move God's purpose for and could be a contributing factor in the, uh, the saving of those people who, who do make it right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's a, that's a common Molinist response. And I have two questions issues with that first i don't think that's empirically always true like there are for example in australia the aborigines let's just assume that they're not saved for sake of argument they weren't christians at least um they were isolated for i think thirty thousand years before any europeans ever came over with christianity right so if you want to argue that every single one of those aborigines was necessary for the existence of someone else you're free to do that but i feel like it's extremely ad hoc because it's like how would that even work causally it seems very 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 unlikely that that's the case and so that's a probabilistic argument but the second one is even if that's true i think that almost makes people a means to an end it almost makes it to where they're pawns in a game to where you're disposable you i you john exists so that sam can have salvation and that's ultimately the reason john exists because john's not going to be in a relationship with god and so it almost devalues the existence of the damned to where they are essentially pawns in the in god's game and they, they're meant there to be taken by the bishop so that God can you know make a move. And he has to sacrifice some to save others. So at that point, that would kind of go to the idea of like, is that a moral gamble? Is that worth that risk to have to sacrifice some lives to save most of them, right? Okay, gotcha. Yeah, that, that clarifies for me at least where you're coming from. Yeah. And like how hard would that, like if I was talking to an unbeliever and they're like, yeah, I'm convinced that like if you don't repent, then your life ultimately was just made for other people to be saved. I mean- it's great that at least they're good or good, but like how I, I can't imagine like a more depressing fate uh, than <laughs> knowing that not only do you not have like a happy ending, but that the entire journey on the way there was meant for someone else and ultimately than for you. And that's just, I don't know, maybe I'm just getting overly emotional on that, but that just seems like worse than any kind of nihilism that uh, naturalism could create. No, I, I get you. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would also like, where does responsibility fall into on the moral agent too? You know, just because there's these avenues that, that have the ability to grow that moral agent, isn't it? It's incumbent upon that free moral agent to also choose to let himself be grown, you know, and there's that. So I, I wouldn't think that it's necessary to, to look at it as like John exists for Sam. Right. Um, I wouldn't look at it more like that, but Sam had his choice and Sam kind of blew it or John kind of blew it. <laughs> and, but in, in the great, great scheme of things, because God can see everything, 
he knows he knew that how Sam would respond to what happened to John, you know, I mean, there's so many levels to it. That's why yeah, that's I, where, I, I like, that's the, I like this. I like the, I, I like the, 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 the argument because mm-hmm. there's so many different levels that you can take it to. Right. Um, and I, Oh man, I had another point too. Yeah. But that's kind of just the idea of like, is it moral for God to allow to like, is it better for God to create Sam and John so that John can be saved and Sam can't, or is it better for God to just not give create either of them? in that way right like well i think uh, well and and that's and and that's also depending on how much value you're putting into that one person Mm -hmm. uh receiving eternal life in the presence of a creator where our minds technically cannot fathom the greatness of that right so i mean (laughs) i don't i there's like i said there's so many complexity there's so many complex layers that you would have to to um what if it was moral for god to create just one person to get into heaven uh, because they could receive something that's, you know, um, initially just unfathomably good. Um, who knows? You know, I mean, it, it, there, there is that that level you'd have to consider something like that. I think right. um, in the theology of it, how you know, what are we basing our our idea of this value on? Is you, you know, um, examine everything that has gone on in this world and how that plays into it. <laughs> how how much does sin actually affect everything? You know, I mean, you're yeah. almost making you're almost creating a, a theodicy almost. <laughs> uh, you know, that's dealing with kind of like you know the nature of reality itself. I think, and there, like I said, there's so many layers. That's you know that's why you know to give you a proper response. I think. I would have to look mm-hmm. at it more, think about it more, come up with a, a polemic uh, against it uh, or for it. You know, if, if I was convinced by it, I don't think there's enough there for me to be convinced by it yet right now. Um, and that, you know, that's mm-hmm. where I'm kind of at. So, yeah, well, but for me, I think it's just it is. Is it moral for like, would it be moral for a parent to make their child go through like some kind of trial knowing, let, let's say that, that knowing for a fact that the child will not learn from it and will not improve? Like, I absolutely think it's more for God to make us go through that if we if we develop and come out strong in the end, right? That's why I think the whole purpose of, of yeah. suffering is. But for people who God knows are damned and knows will not accept him freely, is it moral for God to like make them go through the trial the sufferings on earth anyway, knowing that this is not going to ultimately lead to anything good on their part, maybe on the part of someone else, but making them victims of that? Yeah, uh, I like first I'd have to I'd have to accept that to be the case. I don't think that is the case, right? I, I think there is a reason for it. Uh, and I do think that, um, you know, I think he does put people through things. And I, and I think, you know, no matter what level of learning they learned, what ultimately makes them better anyway. Um, also, I have to take into consideration the the uh, responsibility aspect. I, I I do put my my kids through things. I make them do things that uh, they have a choice to uh, mm-hmm. respond or not to respond. Uh, or but they got to be you know either that responsibility is ultimately forced upon them, or that you know um, it, there's there's a lot there to deal with is whether boundaries or what you know. But it, sometimes I do make them go through things. Uh, right, but you wouldn't make them go through. Some, but you wouldn't make them go through something that you knew wouldn't be profitable in the end, right? But but I I think everything I put them through is profitable. Yeah, but you but right that's true. Right. But not but that doesn't work in the case of the damn because God knows that it won't be profitable for them. I for disagree. Them. I disagree. I think whatever they go through in this life is profitable for them in some way, shape, or form because it's part of the experience of life. 
So yeah, just experiencing how- life on a fundamental scale is a profit. Oh, I don't think that's no, but I don't think that's true. Cause then you could say that if God creates people who are only there to be tortured, let's just say God creates a world in which people were tortured, they still have life, they still have experience, but it's always experience of pain. I don't think it'd be a better world. They would you wouldn't say, well, it's great they exist not, and that's all that matters, right? Yeah, well, no, no, I wouldn't say that. I would say that their existence and stuff like that is profitable. What the, the degree of profitability does contingent is contingent upon yeah. what they would face, obviously. Right. Um, so yeah, do I think that their existence in it, in a, in and of itself is profitable? Absolutely. Um, th- what, the, what scale is that profitability, you know? So, right. um, it, you know, I'm not looking at it as an agent that's just sitting there getting tortured and screaming. They're obviously, there's other things going on there. There's a nature mm-hmm. of reality that they're experiencing that does actually have, uh, um, profitability in it. So even even pain somewhat is is profitable because it tells you that something's wrong, you know. So I mean, it, there's a lot to it. There's so many layers that you know you could dive into there. And and is it is it a better world? I would say that that's not the that's not the world we have. Uh, so I think we've got a better one off the bat. So I would, right. you know. So um, if I'm dealing with the world that I'm dealing in today. That's where I would kind of be like, you know, yeah, I can understand all these like things that are going on are profitable in no matter what, in what degree. It's just degree of profitability. Profitability. Is that even a word? <laughs> they just make one up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm just trying to get at that. That, prof, that profitability is contingent on the circumstances, and I think you agree with that. Which is, and I'm not saying that you think that God's making worlds where people are being tortured. I'm just saying, like, yeah. we agree that that would not yeah. be, even if people existed, that would not be a better. It would be better for God to, if God can only create a world where people are always tortured or not create, better for to not create. But that's that. That's what I'm saying. We agree on. So, the point is that that is contingent on the levels of, of value and profitability. So we agree on that. But the, the point of that is that the, the damned, I think we might disagree there. I think the damned who have to go through the trials of this earth and then not get, not reach the finish line, not oh. get that ultimate fruition from it. It is ultimately pointless because it doesn't wow. amount to anything. I think it does though. I mean, they, they were given the experience to have love. They were given the experience to learn what relationship was. They were given the experience to, uh, um, grow and have, uh, profit in some way, shape or form, you know? Um, so I, there, there is a level there and how it's experienced, I think, uh, is, is different obviously, but but do you do you agree that in this like amnesiac thought experiment to where like let's say you you've, you've seen the movie Groundhog Day right with Bill right, Murray right let's say that you're living that world every day but the difference in that is that you literally wipe your your memories wiped every single day and so you wake up you do this and sometimes you want to live for yourself and live it up and sometimes you you, you want to help others but every day that it reverses back and everything goes back to the way it was would that world be more or less valuable than a world in which people can actually grow and develop and like remember things or is it is it or is it better for a world where like everything is wiped out and and ultimately goes back to square one um in that way depends on the day i think maybe day one is is extremely more profitable than day two (laughs) but 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 if you could choose between having this set of of days where you 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 either give me the world where this is happening every day and it reverses back or a world where you do keep your memories and the day keeps and the day's 
progress like normal, right? And you're not stuck in the same day. Which of those two worlds is more valuable? It depends. Depends on, it? on the way I look at it. Absolutely. Because in, in the first day, uh, in, in the first world, I'll be alive every day to experience everything anew. I don't have, I won't have the regret, the baggage that I have, uh, you know, but you also mistakes, won't have the, mistakes the won't matter because I'll just get wiped out and start over. Yeah. But you the know? good things don't matter either. Right. But of course they will. Of course they will because How I enjoy those. And not only do I enjoy those, but uh, I mean, we'd have, we'd also, I, I think it would still be good, uh, to go through those things, you know, to, to experience those things. Right. So, so this is a very weird view to me in terms of like, okay, so if pain doesn't matter in this world because it's wiped away the next day, I won't remember it. So it doesn't matter if I'm in pain, but happiness does, because even though I won't remember that I was happy the, the previous day and that's wiped away, that the experience of that is inherently good, but the experience of the pain wasn't inherently bad. Like, I don't think you can have it both ways. Yeah. You see, because I don't think pain is inherently a bad thing. I don't, I, I, I think it's different than bad and evil and stuff like that. I don't equate the two. So, uh, where like some pain I think is very necessary for me to experience. Um, and, and it's actually good for me to experience. Um, if it leads to something, yeah. yeah. If it leads not, to something, not, yeah, yeah. It, well, it, it always does, you know. So I mean, it, it, it's on on itself. I think it's it's kind of like you know you hear the story of the girl that she can't she has no pain receptors, right? Yeah, right. Um, so she she doesn't experience that that pain, right? So like her putting a hand on on the stove, she's not going to feel it burn, right? But it's mm -hmm. still She's bad that she got burnt, you know. So it's still harming her body, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, you know, so there's a lot with it. I don't equate harm and all that stuff. I don't put them on the equal lever because I think if you reduce, if you reduce do something like bad, if you reduce bad to just pain, then it, why are we calling it? Why are we calling uh pain bad? It should be just pain at that point. You know, you can't reduce. Well, it's it not, and it's not, and just that's like a, that's what GE Moore proposed anyway. Yeah, it's not just pain. I mean, like, certainly I'm, you know, yeah. so many advocates are soul making. I think they're absolutely a pain you can go through that have a greater good. I'm not denying that. But I, like, I think if in a world where you just get inflicted with pain and there's literally no purpose behind it, I don't think that would be an inherently valuable thing. Uh, if you can learn from it, if you can grow, and I know that's what you're saying, yeah. but I'm saying, I, I'm saying it's impossible not to. Well, but maybe in the moment, but I'm saying the Groundhog Day example, you're not ultimately doing it, it's being erased from you every day. All yeah, but I get to go through 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 a brand new experience over and over again. So, so you disagree? So, so it, it could be a, it, that that type of world could be a better world to live in, de depending on who you are. But, but that's not. But that. But you. That's not the world we live in. To where like you you don't you don't think that God it's better for God to create a world where every action we do, our memories are wiped and we start and we do it again. So where I I can choose between good or bad. Choose I choose good. Okay, start over. Good or bad. I choose, and it's random like there's no predication whereas in the world we live in i have a moral character to where i can predict you know i, I do have free will but we come we become persons right like i have the free will to go and drive to canada right now but even though i can do that doesn't mean just knowing who i am as a person we can be very highly probable that i'm not going to do that right and i can know that although i although i have the free will you're not going to gonna drink milk out of a bag <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah although i have the free will to uh not save my mom if she was choking 
I know, knowing who I am and what I value, I absolutely would. I'm very confident that I would do that. Like it's far more probable. It's not like everything is a 50, 50 probability in terms of, will he do good? Will he do bad? Right. That's obviously not the world we live in. So I'm saying that our free choices build onto our character and that requires this kind of sequacity, this sequence. It's not just that every action is independent. And I'm saying in this Groundhog Day world, you do ultimately get that because although they might be sequastic in the day, it does get started over. And so I'm saying if we take that and then stretch it out for, what, 70 years on this earth, that doesn't seem any better. And it just seems it seems equally as arbitrary as doing it for a day. Like, at what point is it not arbitrary where we draw, draw the line at that point, right? So I'm saying the only model that makes sense to me is one where it's eternally building on and progressing i get it yeah i get it i'm just saying that i would disagree uh that that's uh that that it, that entails i would say i disagree i'm trying to think of how to phrase this uh i would disagree that that that's the only consideration you know what i mean to somebody like david johnson right that said he would rather live in an illusion and, and and be hooked up to the matrix right basically uh i mean you you know you'll get a different response from different people so i i don't know if that's really objectively true or not so so david um, once you guys are up, anyway. i have a question about a totally different topic but i'll wait for you guys okay. to we can no, move on to different topic. yeah 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 we're just we're just shooting the breeze that's how me and caleb do it okay cool uh okay cool so uh yeah i want i want to uh ask you guys so eventually i'm kind of halfway done my series but eventually i want to get back to finish off my hiddenness of god argument for atheism because i'm that's part of my existence of god series and one thing that's interesting um is that one uh, one response that the theists can give is they can say well look people like jl schellenberg and these these atheists advancing the argument are making a mistake they think that belief propositional belief that that person uh, exists is necessary to have a relationship with someone and i've heard counters from some uh, famous philosophers and they'll say no you don't need belief that the person exists in order to have a relationship with them and they'll give like examples of uh, online relationships where you know you're not sure if that person's even real but yet you for years you have an online relationship you're you're talking with them and then let's say finally after two years you meet the, you meet them in person oh you are a real person i i never really believed you were real that whole time i thought i was talking to a, a chat bot this whole time it, it wouldn't make sense well during that two years no you obviously had a relationship with them so i just want to turn it to, to you guys it, do you guys think that belief is a necessary prerequisite uh belief in the existence of the other person is necessary to have a relationship with them or I don't know if that's an interesting topic or not, but I, I Caleb Johnson can answer this first who he wants because he hasn't said anything in a while. Uh thanks. Appreciate it. Um I don't know. I honestly have not considered that. Um I would think that from a purely purely personal sense yes you would have to have some degree of belief uh that that person does exist but again that's 
that's kind of my purely personal uh, off the cuff answer. I, my inclination is to also agree. And I think that if I remember correctly, Schellenberg gives examples like a parent who's hiding from a child. Like if your dad left you for 20 years and even if he was eventually to meet up with you, like even if we could concede that you could have a relationship, what isn't question of value? Is it better to have a relationship with someone directly or is it better to have it indirectly? Like if God has the ability to make it more direct and that would be a better, and that would bring more value value to it, then wouldn't God be obligated to, bring about that if it's a more valuable state of affairs now you could question is that the more valuable state of affairs right so i think it depends on the context of like is that is it better for god to to stay hidden for maybe potentially good reasons or is it um even if so even if they could have a relationship without knowing him like is god still depriving them of, of the better good by not doing that sooner are they missing out on that um so i guess you could say that but um I don't know. I think that's an interesting. I do. I, I do. I do think Schellenberg's argument's really interesting. Uh, I think I would just my my go to on that is just to say that I think that there's no way that a um, it's difficult to establish that someone's a non-resistant non-believer even by like their own uh, testimony because I think that if you're going to grant that most people in the world who are religious are just honestly mistaken, they're not like lying, but they just fool themselves because of wishful thinking or whatever. I don't see how we can't rule that as a possibility for a smaller group of people who think that they are non-resistant non-believers. So I, I just feel like any argument you make for non-resistant non-belief, you can make for people sincerely believing in God. And so you're, you're going to have to pick one side of what one of these groups is wrong since maybe sincerely mistaken, but still wrong. So I just think it's hard to establish the non-resistant non-believer premise to, to my mind. Awesome. Cool. Thanks. Oh, uh, girl, we do not know. Uh, I sent him uh, text after text. I'm trying to get a hold of him. I'm not sure. Maybe he thought it was a Saturday and not a Friday. So that's that's the only thing I can think of right now. Because um, I know Danny, he likes to show uh, up and talk and stuff like that. So and I know he he's found that you're a heretic, talking. and he's like, I don't. Want to <laughs> well, at least I don't drink out of a bag of milk. Uh, Mike got- dropped. <laughs> right. One thing Teddy was making fun of me is because I, I was trying to show off. I'm like, well, we've got Reed's Dairy up in Belleville, Ontario here, and it's the best ice cream you've ever had or whatever. Of course, leave it to Teddy. She finds the loony shakes. And it's like, you guys are all <laughs> <Yeah>. loony. <laughs> that's all. Here's a here's a random question, Dale, that's not related. Before we get back to that, is I was reading on a Reddit form, like, of uh, well, not reading. It was one of the videos where it's a compilation. But they were asking, like, people who don't live in the U.S., what is, like, a – giveaway or like a debt where you can tell just by looking at them or by behavior that someone is from america either by mannerisms or like way they act like in, like in canada could you tell could you spot like in a group of people like which one you think the american is like is it would there be like a tell would there be kind of a giveaway uh, apparently like, would there be? Uh, apparently the, there is but I'll, I'll admit like for me personally uh, i'm horrible at that stuff like i I don't care. People are just people. Like I'm not trying to like, where did you come from? Or mm-hmm. like, I can't, I can't tell. Um, yeah. Like I, I think I'd, apparently some, obviously a dead giveaway if people have an accent or they say mm-hmm. y'all or something like that. I can tell. Y'all. I've heard Canadians say y'all and it, and it makes me turn my head a little bit, but <laughs> really? I, for me, it's when Canadians say ab- ab- about like a boot or something like that. They, they have a slight accent like that. And it's like, Oh, everything you said was normal, and then you just had that one word, and it was like, oh, there it is. 
Yeah, no, see, nobody in Canada talks like that except for Newfies, like in Newfoundland. Um, but sometimes I've done that as a joke. I'm like, well, like, what are you talking about or something like that? Is it not that thick? I mean, it can be a little bit more subtle. How do you how do you say it normally? Just how do you about. Okay, so you yeah, so but I don't know if you're consciously doing that because of the context or like, do you, is that how you say it normally? That's just how I normally talk. Okay, yeah. okay. I know Canadians who like don't have an accent, but like that one word is like that'll give it away but everything else you wouldn't be able to tell so yeah. i don't know if it's just we, the, yeah we have weird words and stuff like so that you guys don't like obviously instead of being you guys call it a beanie we call it a toque um <laughs> like there, there are differences like that but other than that i, I think i sound like a an american Apparently Americans talk louder as well, but I don't know if that's a, and smile more a bit, but, but then again, like Canada, on the TTC, so uh, <laughs> that's our yeah. service. there was one, there was one guy who said that Americans like lean up against things when they're talking and that's not normal in other parts of the world. They're like lean, you know what I'm saying? Like, like you'll lean against a table or like a wall or something if you're staying there for a while. And like, apparently that's not normal in a lot of other countries. So yeah, like, well, I'll that. tell you the one thing that there's such a stereotype, but it's actually true. And you guys will get a laugh out of this, but it's apologizing, saying sorry kind of thing. Okay, Caleb's got to go. But we, I, I do. Even when we do nothing wrong, uh, nice talking to you, Caleb. We'll say sorry. And, and Caleb, I'm sorry for talking about this when you were going to go. But <laughs> no, you just, said sorry. You just said sorry. All right, buddy. We'll see ya. <laughs> we actually enacted a law because it, the problem was so bad that uh, it's called the Apology Act, whereby you are allowed to say sorry in a court of law without incurring guilt because we, apparently Americans, you know, they won't say sorry or that means you're guilty. But we are we had to pass an act where it's like we say sorry, but that's not us admitting that we're guilty or something mm -hmm. in a court. So I don't know. I found that. Funny. See, David, doesn't doesn't he when he says sorry, doesn't he have an accent that you're saying sorry? Me sorry. sorry? Yeah, no, I say sorry. No, no. Dale, say sorry. Oh. Sorry. No, no. When you said it earlier, it was like sorry, like it was slight there, but I think it was there. So that that's I think that was a maybe I'm just being more hyper fixed on it now, but I'm pretty sure you said it with a slight slight accent. But we um, for the most part, I say sorry kind of thing. Yeah, you just said it. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you, David. Yeah. Thank you. It's, <laughs> okay, you say it. sorry. We in the sorry open the ah sorry yeah, sorry sorry. If you say it fast, it's hard to tell. But I think you have a slight. I think it's slightly there, Dale. I think you're you're giving it away there. Oh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a manufi. Yeah. Go yeah. drink some milk out of a bag. You'll be fine. <laughs> well, hey, that's not as bad as uh, as the uh, canned cheese that we have, the, the spray cheese. I think that's probably worse than bagged milk, to be honest, David. That and spam? Yeah, and spam. Spam's like most of the I'll tell you what. I, I went to Costco today, and they totally had, like, hot spam on a Hawaiian roll, Ew. sweet roll a sweet hawaiian roll and i definitely tried it and it was actually pretty freaking good i know that hawaiians love love spam but that's yeah well that hawaiian sweet roll is actually pretty good i have to give them credit other ones are when when it, another giveaway is if they if they say something that's like the metric system where it's like celsius or they'll say kilometers or something like that and you're like oh that's that's true but canada's weird right like for for some things we still use inches and feet and stuff like especially the older generation like my parents mm -hmm they know that more than centimeters and meters and stuff. But like, hmm. so for some things like with haircuts, for example, I, I would, you know, take off 10 centimeters. We don't do that. We, you know, take off like a couple inches or something like that, or, you know, so we're weird. We're, we're in between. 
I don't know what, what's up. I've sent centimeters at a haircut before, though. But just just take off a few because like inches is too much. It's like just take off like a few centimeters. Like I, I couldn't quantitate it, but I can. I just know the range of like about how much I want, right? So, cool. yeah, that's that's, that's probably easier. But I, I very rarely say meters or like kilometers or grams. Typically, it's yeah. yeah for for us it's all kilometers like the speed limits are kilometers per hour i remember i had i rented an american car and i was like oh oh my gosh like i had to pay attention like what speed am i going and stuff like that so, do you yeah. all drive on the right side of the road or left on the right side of course okay okay yeah. so you're not, you're not brits at least it's not yeah. <laughs> no <laughs> that was just insane yeah do you all uh what's i'm trying to think of what other words because i know like in britain australia they have different words for different things do you what do you call uh the well, no, I don't think Canada has differences. Like in terms of, like, do you do you just say cotton candy? Is that what you call that there? Cotton candy, yeah, yeah. Because in in Britain it's called uh, candy floss, which I guess makes sense because it looks like floss. And in Australia it's called fairy floss, which is kind of fun. Interesting. Um, I, I know in in Britain the uh, an, an elevator is called a lift, which also like makes sense. Yeah. yeah, he thank you. He definitely said sorry. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> no, I didn't. Yes, you you're in denial. Embrace you need to just embrace it. Just okay. all right, next time we do a stream, I want you to dress up as a full mountie and and embrace it. Okay. Like well, guys, I think we made the best out of this show. Uh we didn't get Danny. Uh after we schedule him. Um usually, like I said, he's not the one to bail. I did have uh, uh some confirmation also um from Titan. He was talking about there's thunderstorms in his his area that could have knocked out power. So um not sure. Just hope everything's okay with him. Um, you know, we're not you know, we don't hate on anybody because they missed something. <laughs> we made the best out of the show. Anyways, uh with that, guys, you know, uh, next week we have – I think we have an opening next week. Um, so we'll probably come on and, and try this again with Danny uh, if he wants to. Um, but, yeah, other than that, uh, we've got uh, the Trout Show coming up. Uh, Dale and Jordan will be debating the Trout, yeah, uh, which say is going to be awesome. Caleb. Thank you, Caleb, because you gave uh, your objection to the medieval part was interesting so I've, I've never heard about it i do think it's a good objection mm -hmm. like appealing to god's mo that he mm -hmm. doesn't do authenticating miracles in certain in cultures where christianity is already established i mm -hmm. i think i have a rebuttal the rebuttals to it but I'll, i need to work on it but that was a good objection i never heard it before so. thank you yeah i mean that's just something you come across in like philosophy of miracles in terms of like what are we looking for and what are we not and actually you know what's funny is that he i mean i that, that's I've thought of that before other people brought it up, but Hugh Ferry, I was asked, this is way back when he was helping me review some of the Catholic stuff, and he had brought up the Eucharist miracles. And I have, a, I don't know if you read my blog post on Eucharist miracles back, probably, I don't know, like eight months ago now. Um, but I, but I, I give my concerns there, and, and that's part of it as well, where I think it's like, okay, but like these are mostly in culture. And and Hugh Ferry had asked that question, too, of like, why would God, other than like Lanciano, like in most of these cases, like people already believe. So what's kind of the point? right in, ter in terms of that or at least it seems like it seems like the hypothesis that people are being credulous is better than the idea that god's trying to vindicate a message if the only people who are really perceiving it now granted the shadow turn is one that's widely studied right but um i guess it's like if it, if it was like a claim about a, an indian guru who did a miracle and the only people who saw it were hindus that already believed in it and like no one else had ever heard of this or converted that to me would be at least some evidence to to, to think there's probably something up do you mind All if right. I just ask you though, because there's an important difference here, right? Like my my medieval miracle thought experiment 
look, we're assuming this thing has been proven to be a miracle. That's part, that's right. a given. And yeah, like and we hypothetical. can't really reject that evidence just because it's from the medieval period. That that's what I I, I think on a balance of probabilities. Maybe, you know, maybe there's an issue, but it's at least plausible that no, you you should follow the evidence that we have proof this thing's a, a miracle and we're formed by God. Well, so I think I would take issue with proved it's a miracle because I, I, I would, I mean, you probably would agree that I would take like a Bayesian approach in terms of how do we determine whether something isn't, a, whether something we say it's a miracle versus it's it's simply an unknown weird phenomenon, right, that we can't replicate. And I think that the background knowledge is relevant to that in terms of the context. And so I think the priors for God healing people, uh, you know, out of mercy is not very, is not that low the probability of God doing a vindication miracle in a culture isn't that low. And so if there's a relevant cultural context, and you you could argue for a relevant religious context, but I think it's harder to do it in the Shroud case than maybe for some other ones. But I think the Shroud case would be better than, you know, some some other ones in like Eastern religion. So it's not like it's not like it's the lowest one, right? So it, I, it, no, it, I definitely yeah. hear you. I, I, do, I do agree on the prior probability thing that positing it in the medieval period might slightly lower it. Uh, but it's the evidence, the scientific evidence that we have that it is in fact miraculous. That a posteriori stuff overwhelms mm -hmm. anything on that front. So, yeah, it could be. But I, I think that when you say again is miraculous, I just be like saying like I, I think demonstrating that something is miraculous has to be an inferential argument in terms of you can demonstrate that it's not explicable by any known natural mechanism. Right. But when you're getting to there, then therefore God's the best hypothesis, you're going to you, you do have to throw in some natural theology and some idea of like, why or why is the supernatural agent hypothesis better than the un, than, than just pausing some unknown? Uh, we don't know what it is yet, but, you know, we might find out that kind of thing. So I think you can do that in principle, um, but it just depends on the context. But there are things that I think are weird anomalies that I don't jump to a supernatural conclusion. And I just say, I don't know what to think. Right. Like, uh what do you because well, my my argument for the shred you you personally have seen my criteria for authenticating a religious authenticating miracle mm -hmm. event. and again it doesn't matter whether it's supernatural natural necessarily mm -hmm. but it's it it fits those criteria do you think so i'm 72 percent convinced that the the images right. on the shroud fit those criteria do you think my criteria are justified in saying yeah god did it that's a miracle that's a god designed event I, to be honest, I have to look at the criteria again. <laughs> okay. right. I, yeah, because I, I don't remember off the top of my head. I know we've talked about it before um, in that way. Do we want to – sorry, do you want to wrap the show up, uh, Dave? We can talk about this a little bit after the show. <laughs> yeah, that's fine, guys. Uh, let's just, so, know let's wrap it. Uh, let everybody go home and do whatever they want to do, and or they probably are watching from home. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, guys, so, again, we have uh, the Shroud debate coming up, which is going to be fun. Um after that, uh, we don't have anything scheduled right off the top of my head. Uh, me and Tyler are definitely going to be working on the gospel documentary, so stay tuned for that. And until then, as Tyler tells us, be safe, God bless, be safe, and stay like Christ.